me encourage you, if you've got your Bibles with you or have one in the pew there in front of you, to go ahead and open up to Psalm 51. We'll be there um, in a few minutes. I wonder if you can think back to the last time you were asked to provide a photo of yourself for something. Maybe it was for a church directory. Maybe you had something published and your, your photo appeared next to your name. Maybe it was just the last time you updated your Facebook profile photo or Instagram photo. But whatever it was you were supplying uh, a picture of yourself for, how did you arrive at which photo to choose? Which one to kind of put out there for the world to see? I think most of us, right, are, are careful to locate a photo that we feel highlights the best parts about us, right? Accentuates our good features. We want a photo where we're having a good hair day. We want a photo that you can't see too many wrinkles. We want a photo where there's, you know, the right amount of smile, but not too much smile. Right? We, ha we have this whole sort of calculation where we want to put our best photo, we want to put our best self forward for other people to see. And that, I think, is a pretty natural thing for us to want to do. But we also have to come to terms with the reality that for most of the time, most of the 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we don't actually look very much like our Facebook profile photos, right? We have bad days. We have moments where we are grimacing or, or frowning. We have days where things get muddled up instead of turn out in a way that we want to show everyone. We have days that we pray will never find their way onto social media or into print, right? Even though these things are actually a pretty big part of who we are and our lived experiences. If there's this discrepancy between sort of the image we put out there for others to see and kind of what, what we really experience in everyday life. Russ Ramsey is a, a pastor and a writer who also happens to be a, a visual artist. And he, in one of his books, recalls an assignment he was given in art school to paint his own self-portrait. I think he was a high school or college student at the time. And he talked about how difficult that, that assignment was and, and how he labored over that portrait of himself. Because on the one hand, he wanted to give it a sense of realism, wanted it to look like him. But on the other hand, he didn't really want it to look like him. He wanted to sneak in you know, the features of his face that he wished he had. Right? He wanted to sort of make improvements on, on his own self-image. And he says the end result wasn't, wasn't a very compelling portrait. Right? That it, just didn't, it didn't translate into something that looked very believable because the self-portrait wasn't actually him. It was who he wished he was, what he wished he looked like. I think he said he got a, a B minus or a C plus. Russ Ramsey says, in, in contrast to that, that dilemma that he experienced as a, a young artist, he says, consider a very different self-portrait that is now considered to be one of the most valuable paintings in, in the history of Western art. 
It's a self-portrait that actually just sold on auction last year for almost $120 million. It was painted in 1889, but this self-portrait was painted on the grounds of an asylum for the mentally ill in southern France. And it was painted by a man who at the time was battling depression, paranoia, a deep sense of rejection and social isolation. He was humiliated. And so you, you know the painting, Vincent van Gogh, and it's entitled, the, the title he gave it is Self-Portrait with Bandaged Ear. It was painted uh, just a few months after he inflicted a wound unto his own body, right? He, he cut off his ear and, and gave it as a gift to someone. Um, in, in one of these states of paranoia and despair. But he, he chose at that time in his life to kind of paint himself as he was, to put himself as he was in that moment on canvas to be preserved for history. Van Gogh didn't give us his best self. He gave us his true self. Right? He, he even right, puts the wounded part of his face forward in the painting to be prominent. And I think it, it's, it's fascinating to think that in the same few months on the grounds of that asylum that he was painting this painting, Van Gogh was also painting Starry Night and Irises and some of the most iconic and beautiful art you know, of the past hundred, couple hundred years. Van Gogh was a person, I think, yearning to be seen and understood in a state of great vulnerability and woundedness. But there's, I think, something brutal about this painting, but also something beautiful. As Russ Ramsey, who, who's analyzing this painting, concludes, he says, it's beautiful to us because we realize we also have wounds that need binding. He says, we, we also are souls seeking asylum somewhere. And the question is, do we, do we have a place to display that portrait of our true selves? Do we have a place where that comes out? Are we brave enough to, to show ourselves our sore spots, our woundedness, our sin, our brokenness? Do we have a place to be that and to show that in the lives of other people? And do we dare bring that version of ourselves before God in prayer, in worship, into that relationship? Last week, we, we talked about an area of prayer we were calling adoration. And we, we talked about that as a way in which, in prayer, we come to sort of look upon the gaze of God, to look upon the face of God, the beauty of God, the perfection of God, God's hallowedness, to remember the one we're praying to and the God who created us. But I think as we do that, as we experience that in prayer, looking upon the face of, of a God who is perfect and life and light, there's also something within us that wonders what God sees when he looks back our way. What, what profile do we offer God in those moments of ourselves? And so today, I want to move 
from adoration into this area of prayer focused on confession. And it's, it's an area of prayer that, that focuses on transparency and vulnerability. But I think it, it offers us a way to be in God's presence, but to, to be seen as we actually are. Not as we think we should be, or even as we think God thinks we should be. And confession probably isn't something that we find, you know, a, a great deal of motivation to do, right? It may be something we have a, a bit of a, an arm's length distance from. We have some reluctance. We don't have warm fuzzies when we think about confession. But I think confession offers us a chance to taste of God's good gifts of mercy and compassion and pardon and healing and welcome. And so I want to pray for us that as we, we come to God's word this morning, that we might see this as an area of prayer that, that we grow in our desire to experience and practice. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you already see us and know us as we are. And we thank you that you desire for us to, to willingly bring that version of ourselves to you relate to you as we are, to name, even in your presence, the things we are afraid of, we are ashamed of, we've been hurt by, places we desperately need help and healing. Lord, thank you that you meet us there and that you love us. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the the honest meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we think about confession, right, this, this desire is, is that we might begin to see and, and bring our true selves to God in prayer with, with regularity, as, as part of just who we are and, and how we, we show up in that space, in that relationship. But as we bring our, our true selves to God in prayer, one of the, the things that emerges is, is a problem called sin, right? The problem that, that we aren't as we'd like to be. There are broken pieces. There are undesirable pieces. There are things that we wish weren't the case. What do we do with that? In the, the book this week, in chapter 4, the author quotes uh, G.K. Chesterton, and he talks about Chesterton's insight that, that sin, our problem of sin, is actually maybe one of the most empirically verif verifiable parts of the Christian faith or the theological convictions we hold. Right, you, can, you can look anywhere in any person's life, anywhere in our world, and see that there are, are broken pieces, things that don't work, fractured relationships, problems. And anyone with even the smallest bit of, of honesty can acknowledge that at least some of those broken bits, some of those broken pieces, some of those problems are inside of them, right? They belong to each one of us. So the, 
The bigger debate when it comes to sin is not really so much does it exist, but it's more about what, what to do about it. How do we manage? And one approach is maybe to see sin as a reality, but one that's regrettably unavoidable. And we might as well just get on learning how to live with this reality. Which might mean either minimizing how, how prevalent sin is, how, how big a problem it truly is. Or it might also look like medicating ourselves with, with coping mechanisms, with strategies, with things to sort of cover over the problems sin creates. To mask the pain, to push away the guilt that come along with living with broken pieces. That's one, maybe, way to go about dealing with sin. The opposite approach that maybe we see manifested sometimes in the church is what I call sin management. Right? This recognizes that sin is a problem, but but the hope is if we can identify every variety of sin out there, if we can figure out what it is and where it comes from, then maybe we can control it somehow. You know, sin, sin has to be stamped out. And when we find ourselves falling into sin, right, this approach assumes that, that the reason that happens is because we haven't tried hard enough to eliminate it from our lives. And so the solution is in, in redoubling our own efforts in the form of, of more rules or greater pressure or an increased sense of of shame that we bring upon ourselves. But I don't think the scriptures actually recommend either of these strategies to manage, to to deal with the reality of sin. The scriptures don't tell us that, that sin is just the way it has to be, so get used to it. But neither do the scriptures suggest that sin is something we can eliminate by force of our own will. I appreciate a, a saying that, that Pastor Tim Keller was, was fond of sharing in his preaching. He talked about how, how the scriptures and how the gospel holds together these, these two seemingly opposite truths when it comes to sin. Keller says the first of these truths is that we are more wicked than we ever dare believe. The the, the brokenness within us, selfishness within us, runs runs deeper than we can even comprehend. But he says the second reality we have to hold in tension at the same time is that we are also more loved, more accepted in the person of Jesus than we could ever dare hope. And so as we think about confession this morning, I want us to think about confession as a way of holding both of those realities in tension, drawing them both together as we, as we learn to pray and be ourselves in God's presence. That this problem is more significant than we dared believe, but yet we are more loved, more accepted than we dared hope. So each week, in this series, we've, we've looked to someone in Scripture who might teach us about this area of prayer. A few weeks ago, we looked at the life of Moses. After that, we looked at the life of Elijah. Last week, we looked at the, the life of the Apostle Paul. But when it comes to, to cultivating a confessional prayer life, 
Right? We, we need someone sort of like Van Gogh, someone who's not afraid to give us an accurate self-portrait, even when it's unflattering. And more importantly, someone who's, who's not afraid to, to bring that version of themselves before God as they pray. And for that, I think there's probably no better teacher in Scripture than the person of David. David wrote a huge portion of the Psalms, the prayers that are now recorded in our Bibles. His life and his biography are, are recorded in, in historical books like First uh, and Second Samuel, Kings. But what's amazing to me is the fact that we, we even have these prayers to access, to read. Because many of David's prayers are extremely extremely personal, and also extremely unflattering to David. I think it's incredible that, J that David chose not to bury this stuff, not to hide it away. Right? David has a significant sin problem. It shows up throughout his biography in Scripture. But if you, if you go back and you look over the historical record of most kings and kingdoms... Most kings do whatever they can to scrub the, the undesirable bits, their scandals, their screw-ups, to scrub those from the record, right? To, to cover them up, to bury them, to hide them. And David tries to do that on a few occasions. But ultimately, David comes to this place where he decides to turn his own vulnerability, his own failure, his own sin into prayers of confession and then to add those prayers to the life of Israel's worship. David's prayers become Israel's prayer book. David chooses to preserve his confessions, his brokenness for posterity, rather than his success exclusively. And I think that's remarkable. Today I want to look at, at just one of David's prayers recorded in Psalm 51. You Find your way there. Several of, of David's psalms, actually in the inscription right before the psalm, were told what motivated, what prompted David to write these particular prayers. And Psalm 51 is one of those. And the occasion for this prayer isn't pretty. Right? It's, it's pretty broken. Psalm 51, the inscription tells us that this prayer comes right after David had committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. David then had her husband, Uriah, sent away to the front lines of battle so that, that he would perish in battle, that the child that came uh, as a result of their union you know, would, would be covered up, no one would know what happened, and, and David could, could sort of bury um, his own scandal, hide it away, until a man named Nathan, a prophet in David's court, sees what's happening and chooses to confront David on his own sin. And in the aftermath, we're told David composes this prayer. We'll look at the first four verses to start. This is how David prays. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And that's just a translation of a Hebrew word which means rebellious or, or, or purposeful choices that result in, in brokenness. 
In your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I think there, there's plenty about David's life that we don't want to imitate. Right? We don't want to imitate David's ego. We don't want to imitate David in his ambition, in his lusts, in his violent temper. But when David prays, right, there, are, there are few who have come so broken but also so boldly into God's presence to be seen and to be known. And I think this is David's greatest gift to us. This is where we want to learn from David and imitate him. And at the start of David's prayer, I think he, he does two things that we, we might imitate as well. The first is that David acknowledges how overwhelmed, how overmatched he is by his own sin. But look at what he communicates in verse 3. He says, I know my sins, my transgressions. Right? I'm, I'm well aware of them. They're always before me. Right? I, I can't get rid of them. They're always staring back at me. Right? David, David remembers his lust. David remembers his ambition. David remembers the way he's abused other people. And he can't, he can't rid himself of that past. David goes a step further in verse 4 to acknowledge not only is he overwhelmed by his sin, but that, that his choices are, in fact, evil. They are wrong. There, there is something objectively broken about the choices he continues to make. And so David doesn't, doesn't make an excuse. He acknowledges his own guilt. But to the, the same degree that David has this keen, kind of amplified sense of his own brokenness and sin nature. To the same degree and maybe even more, David grasps the nature of the God he prays to from that place of brokenness. And so in verse 1, David says, it's according to God's unfailing love. It's according to God's great compassion that he even dares to make this confession. Right? David, David sees that he is overwhelmed and mastered by his sin. But the reason David prays is that he believes the mercy of God, the character of God, the hospitality of God is, is greater than those things. And so in the verses that follow, David throws himself upon that mercy. And he asks God to do what he knows he himself cannot. Look at, at verses 7 and following in this, in this psalm. David prays, cleanse me with hyssop, which was a, uh, a green plant that was used in ceremonial rituals to, to purify or, or cleanse from sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. As David kind of gets into the core of his confession here, what's striking to me is that the way David prays is almost entirely in the passive voice. Right? David's prayer of confession comes from this place of powerlessness, of emptiness, of exhaustion. Right? If you look over these verses, David is, is giving up on his own efforts to fix this. Instead, he's now asking God for help. Right? Look, at, look at the passive verbs. God, cleanse me. God, open my ears so I could hear. God, blot out my sin. God, create. God, renew. God, restore. God, sustain. God, deliver me. God, Open my lips. Doesn't David sound needy in this passage? Right, why doesn't David do something for himself? Why doesn't he take some initiative in this prayer? Well, I think maybe that's, that's the point. Maybe that's what David desires to teach us in this confession. Right? When, it, when it comes to learning how, how to pray in this way, what we don't need is someone perfect. What we don't need is someone self-reliant. What we need is a guy who's stuck at the bottom of a pit. And that's someone who can teach us confession. To learn how to pray in this way, we need a prayer without his own wisdom. Maybe without even the willpower or the energy to even try to climb out of the pit anymore. But someone who believes that, that it's possible that God would want to come down and be in the pit with him. Someone who believes God hears the cry of a sinking soul. Right? To make confession a regular part of our lives, we actually have to have an image, have to have a relationship with a God who we believe won't push us aside when, when our weakness is exposed. We have, to, we have to believe in a God who desires and, and is patient to wash us, to purify us, to steady our hearts when we're despairing. A God who, who does not eliminate sin-deadened creatures, but revives them. We have to believe in a God who actually welcomes us to show him our bruises and our bandages not just our Facebook photos. 
We have to believe in a God who actually loves sinners. And that's, that's the God David is convinced in this prayer is hearing him. And so D- David pleads with God to act on his behalf. But there is one thing at the very end of this psalm where David does take initiative. Where David does do something, bring something to God. And I want to finish by looking at that in verses 16 and 17. David says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, what I bring is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. In verse 16, David acknowledges there's no way for him to buy his way out of this problem. There's no special gift or sacrifice that will will just remove the sense of guilt and shame that he holds within him. But there's one thing David believes God will always welcome, will always accept, even from those who are mastered by their own sin. Right? David says, let me bring you my broken heart, my broken spirit. God, surely if I do this, you will not despise me. David names something powerful here. That we're to believe that our confession, our contrition, our our cries of groaning in God's presence matter to God. That they are welcomed by God. That they are even precious to God. That he receives them as a gift. Not, Not because God takes any pleasure in our suffering but rather because God is the kind of God who wants to draw close to those who know they have need of him. Right? When, when God reveals himself to Moses on the mountain, what does he say about himself? I am the Lord, the Lord. Right? Full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. I think it's for this reason that when God takes on human flesh, and appears on the earth in the person of Jesus. We see Jesus going out of his way to keep company with real sinners. Right? Offensive people. Not just people who were misunderstood. Right? The people Jesus regularly spends time with are people who were making poor choices. Are people who were hurting other people with their choices. People who were were broken and caught in in a cycle of brokenness and sin. But in in their own poverty of spirit, right, they perceived the incredible life that was in Jesus, the incredible mercy that was in Jesus. They actually believed Jesus wanted to be close to them. The scriptures teach us that this God is the God who hears our confessions. And so the more clearly we see and understand who God is, who Jesus is, how God looks upon us. Right? The more freely 
and the more consistently we will come to him with our own broken hearts, with our own need for help. So this week, I want to invite you into this practice of confession as as something for you to, to try out in your own prayer life. so that you might, might be released from, unburdened by the, the weight of your own guilt or sin, and that you might experience what it's like to, to be fully yourself in God's presence. And so at the end of the fourth chapter in the book, there's, there's some really basic steps that, that the author outlines to help us practice confession. And he says confession sort of boils down to, to two things. The first thing is is that we invite God to search us, right? We invite God to look upon our lives unfiltered. And that to do that is an act of trust. It's an act of vulnerability. But we can do that because we believe the Holy Spirit is, is a gentle guide in that searching and in that examining. That God looks upon us and and wants to search us, yes, to to free us from our sin, but not to condemn us, not to shame us, not to hold those things over us, but to help them be released. So we, we invite God to search us in the practice of confession with the help of the Spirit. And then the second step is simply to name whatever God reveals in that time of searching. Right, whatever we sense, wherever we sense we need help, wherever we have failed, whatever needs restoration and reconciliation in God's presence, to just say that out loud in God's presence. And by doing so, we, we invite him to release his power and his mercy to go to work, to do what we cannot do ourselves. Let me pray for us that, that we might find life in this practice this week. Lord Jesus, would you search us and know us? Would you increase our confidence and our desire to meet with you as we are? And may each person here experience this week the mercy, the steadfast love, loving kindness of a God who who knows us just as we are and yet loves us and persists in wanting to to heal and reestablish us in your presence. Pray these things in your name. Amen.